90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how you doing? Oh, it's good to be back home, John. How about you? It's good to be back home for me as well. My travel travel karma followed me, uh, <laughs> even when I was not flying, unfortunately. I don't know what you did in a past life to anger the travel gods, but I'm never going anywhere with you ever. <laughs> no, no, Again. nobody should travel anywhere with me. Uh, uh, no, that's... That's awful. So you weren't even flying? What Car wreck? What happened? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, no, so I went to a workshop, and then we ended up, uh, they were pushing the workshop schedule together on the last day, uh, trying to end early because it was supposed to start pouring snow, and so it did. And I was, you know, a four-hour drive, uh, going to be in the dark from home. So I decided <laughs> just to uh, wait it out another night. <laughs> wow. Where I was, uh, we were in shorts and T-shirts. That sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess it's going to be a little bit unstructured today, but what we really just wanted to do was talk about our travels of the last couple weeks and why we had to record last week's show early, right? Uh, Yeah, because we've been everywhere, it seems like, all over the place. And um, I'd like to say, though, I don't think our shows are ever really too structured, so this is probably not so much out of the norm. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) So before we get started, actually, I've got a couple of uh, exciting bits of news for us. All right, let's hear it. All right, so thanks to uh, Twitter, we got another little burst of listeners, uh, one of the last shows, and we've got some more reviews on iTunes. So thanks to CJA12 for your wonderful review of the show. And uh, reminder, just go on iTunes and write a quick little review for us. It really helps drive listeners our way. We're not above bribing you, but we'll, you can get to us, you know, through back channels on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Shannon, where were you exactly? Oh, so I took my Intro to Field Methods class, and we went to the San Ysidro Anticline in northern New Mexico. Okay, and I see you sent me a link here. <laughs> yes, there's a really good, the New Mexico Bureau of Geology and Mineral Resources actually has a really cool, um, it's kind of a little bitty guidebook. It's probably only about six pages long, but it's what we used um, when we went out there, and I just printed it off for the kids, and uh, my husband and I went out on a scouting mission the week before. It's the only time I'd been there, <laughs> and I took a week later, 37 kids camping in New Mexico, so it was quite exciting. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> logistics of taking 37 people camping, that sounds a little tricky. Right. So, last semester, I taught the same group of kids, and I did the same thing, except I went totally blind. We went to Paladuro in um, the Texas Panhandle, and if for anyone that lives in the South, Paladuro is an amazing, amazing place. You literally drive on nothingness and you fall down into this canyon and they call it the grand canyon of texas and it really is it's amazing but that trip i said okay guys we're going camping for two days and about a third of the class had never been camping before which sort of blows my (laughs) mind like to think that you've never been camping before and you're a senior in geology because i mean that's why i grew up loving geology i'm sure you had the same experiences 
you know, is going yeah. outside and camping all the time. That's fascinating. You never think about uh, <laughs> no. that. But <laughs> no, but now it's maybe not so much the case. Uh, exactly. So it's really strange. But um, so most of them were prepared for it this time. And I will say that we camped in the town of Bernalillo, which is right outside of Albuquerque. And the town actually has their own campground. And so it's literally in town and it's about 200 yards from a casino. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that made me a little nervous but this was really it was cheap camping it was beautiful it was right on the Rio Grande River you could see the Sandia Mountains right out your tent when you woke up in the morning and um, there was a great hot shower and bathrooms that were super clean it was positively luxurious in terms of camping actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like uh, really roughing it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the great part is there's all this scrub brush because they're in the Rio Grande, um, just right along the riverbed. And so you had to walk. I mean, it was tough work. You had to walk maybe 10 feet to get firewood. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it was quite wonderful. And there was we were the only tent campers there um, aside from one other family. And so we just took up the whole place and... Everybody had a good time. Uh, I had students come up to me that said they'd never been camping before, and it was their first time to cook hot dogs over a fire, and they had so much fun doing it. So it went better than any field trip I imagine will ever go in the future for me. <laughs> well, that sounds really great. Yeah. Yeah, so the logistics, it wasn't too bad. And our university actually has this wonderful thing, and I urge anyone who hasn't gone camping to look into this. Um, our fitness center actually rents out tents and sleeping bags and sleeping pads and camp stoves and everything you would possibly need. And so wow. I've got a couple of foreign exchange students um, that are in my class, and so they were able to rent out super high-end tents and sleeping bags and everything they needed. It was wonderful. So... It was a great yeah, time. Yeah, that sounds really great. I'm surprised they do that, but that's a fantastic service to offer. Uh, I know. I couldn't believe it. I found out about it last semester, and we availed uh, ourselves of their tents last time, and we did it again this time, and they're just great to work with. So logistically, <laughs> everything was wonderful. All the vans worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a pesky semi-flat tire half the time, but that's okay. We got over it. Nothing bad happened. And more importantly, the geology was amazing yeah so i'm looking at this page that you had sent kind of a little field guide it looks like a really great place to take students for uh, a mapping project it really was um i was referred to it by uh one of my committee members for my phd i worked at unm uh, university of new mexico there in albuquerque and he said this is a great place to go and it was really wonderful i mean we have a lot of really great as you know you know structure and um different you know formations here in Oklahoma in terms of sedimentary rocks igneous rocks all kinds of great stuff to do but I kind of wanted to take them on a big mapping project and that's what this is I mean it's a huge anticline structure and it's covered in mountain bike trails oh wow yeah <laughs> so that was the good thing is that you know this is their field class and I feel like there's not a ton of um exposure they've had to just going out and mapping yet they don't really do that in any other classes because they're supposed to do it in this class and so it was a really great location for that because there were trails all along the rim of the anticline that were up high so I could stay up high where everyone could see where I was 
come to me if they had problems, but then, you know, they had to also push themselves a lot and clamber down into the bottom of this structure as well to do some mapping. But there were always really accessible trails. There was a big spring in the middle, pumping out a whole ton of travertine. Super awesome. And although, as you can see on the website, the uh, the actual stratigraphy there is, is fairly straightforward. So that was good. But, you know, there's a little bit of structure and there's a lot of faults. This is a structurally complex area. And so they had to do some thinking about it even after reading this uh, handout here. Yeah, I mean, even with just a few units, when you start getting things that are overturned or anything like that, it can get pretty <laughs> mind-bending. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, there is a, this actually lent itself great for the rest of the class because this was their first mapping project. As you remember, we got rained out, snowed out, actually, <laughs> of our first time out in the field. So I was a little nervous because this is the first time I handed them a Togo map and they walked outside and had to start putting rocks on paper. You know, they hadn't done that before. Um, so the easy stratigraphy was good. Um, so it's a big anticline, and the center is eroded. So it's really deeply eroded, and you can climb down in it. And the sides are really steeply dipping, probably about 60, almost 70 degrees in some places. So it was a pretty big structure at one time and was really yeah. impressive to stand in. Yeah, that's amazingly sharp, really. So is this thing plunging any or anything complicated like that? Well, no, but there was something complicated about it. Uh -oh. um, yeah. As you can see from the stratigraphy, um, and if you go to this website, the New Mexico Bureau of Mines website, you can see here, at the base is a carbonate member. And at the base inside the anticline, in the eroded part, there's actually cross-bedded travertine. Hmm. Yep, just let that one sink in. Okay. <laughs> so this cross-bedded travertine is not the carbonate that's at the base of the section, which is where you'd expect to find the base of the section is in the middle of the anticline, right? But this travertine is cross-bedded from these springs that are really recent. They're actually still flowing. And the cross-bedding isn't like how we normally think of sedimentary cross-bedding. It's just a product of the spring changing position over time. There are huge springs down there. And so this weird cross-bedded limestone is not the limestone in the section. It's, it's actually travertine that's modern in age. But the limestone in the section is the topographically highest part of this anticline. Okay, the limestone in the section is topographically highest. Right. So that's in the in the core of the anticline then. Yes. And so this it's the lowest part of the section. It's the base of the section. The oldest rock we're dealing with is topographically the highest in the anticline. And that's because the anticline is so steep on the sides, right? 67, 70 degrees. Yeah that you know it's been eroded down to that but that's still left because it's actually gypsum so it's this huge block of gypsum so i got a little confused about where that was in the section and i lied to the students for a whole day <laughs> uh-oh <laughs> yes but as we know uh, if you listened to last week's show I've been I think wrong two before. weeks ago. Two weeks before. That's right. Sorry. It's been a long time. Um, two weeks ago, I've been wrong before. I went on and on about Wales being its own island, which is, of course, ludicrous. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I had my, my intentions were good, and I was obviously confused here in this anticline as well. But it was a great teaching moment, actually. So, you know, these students are fighting with me over this where this, like, carbonate goes. 
right? And it was really good because we're standing in the middle of the anticline. I've got about 10 of my 37 students right there. And we have this great discussion about how the structure works and how, you know, how the travertine is forming. And then we look at this carbonate and then we look at the sides of the anticline and we think, wow, you know, at least like hundreds of feet of this anticline have to have been eroded. And that actually is the base of the section, even though it's topographically high, it's kind of a trick, you know, it's in the very center of the anticline, the core of the anticline, right along the axis. It's right where you'd expect to find it. So even though it's topographically highest, it's in its exact right place because so much of the rock has been removed from above it. So it was a really great structural problem that they all figured out themselves. So it was actually, even though I didn't do it on purpose, <laughs> You know, but you maybe learn, you should next time. <laughs> uh, you know, I might because you you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And I guarantee you, if I asked any of my students questions about this in class on Friday, they will get them a hundred percent right because they're going to remember that conversation that we all had together when I, their teacher was really wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember when I was doing uh, one of my first field maps, uh, we were tracing a fault that was cutting through our study area and our mapping professor found me in the field and he said let me see what you have and he started <laughs> tracing my where I had drawn the fault in and he goes uh-huh uh-huh and then I had deviated into this valley and he goes oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's how I felt <laughs> and, and after that I knew where the fault went uh, right <laughs> exactly that's exactly and it was it was an unadulterated success like everyone really enjoyed it i mean the views in new mexico as you can see from the pictures on this website and pictures that i'll post of our class i mean just the views are spectacular we had perfect weather it was in the 70s got a little chilly at night um after the first night i had several requests to go to walmart to buy <laughs> to buy blankets <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> despite my numerous warnings that we would be in the high desert and it does get cold at night <laughs> so so on the uh, on the website i'm looking at the column and it doesn't really have any kind of scale so how thick are some of these units um let's see so we mostly dealt with really just the just in the anticline itself was mostly the middle jurassic um, so that was it. So several hundred feet thick for each of the units. They were very okay. obvious. Um, I mean, the Morrison is the majority of it. And then on the outskirts of the anticline, and you can see from outside the structure, is the Cretaceous Dakota Formation, which you're familiar with. That's Our field camp has a lot of Dakota <laughs> formation Absolutely. in it as well. And it's really easy to tell the difference between the two. And so... Where we were in the anticline, you know, we saw a couple hundred feet of Dakota, but we could never really touch it. And most of it was Morrison, uh, Somerville, and then that basal carbonate unit okay. and the rest of it. Well, and the Morrison's a really great unit, too, because your students will see that more when they're out doing their final mapping. Uh, ex exactly. So I didn't want to take them to where we go to our, um, our summer field camp because they're going to be mapping that area for six weeks in the summer. And so I didn't want to overdo it there. But what was great about going to northern New Mexico is that some of the same um, structural events that affected this anticline, you know, such as the Laramide orogeny, um, you know, it's right on the Colorado Plateau and it's bordering some major faults um, 
associated with the Rio Grande rifting, those same structural um, tectonics have also affected the areas that they're going to be mapping all summer. So they don't really know it yet, but they're going to be seeing the same sort of deformation in the areas that they're going to go back to for their capstone. So I thought that was kind of a neat way to tie them together without them knowing it, basically. Yeah, that's really great, and I think it'll help them quite a bit instead of getting thrown into this environment with more complicated uh, geology than they're used to seeing and a bunch of units to learn. Uh, Yes, I know, exactly. I think they were super, well, they'll be super thankful <laughs> later. Uh, and it's, it's nice to, because here the units look like they would be at least a little bit differentiated, uh, whereas some of the places they will have to map, it's shades of sandstone. Exactly. And that was actually sort of the, the drawback about the anticline is that you're really, it's all on BLM land and God bless public lands. Like I am, I'm a believer all the way. I went to the BLM office in Albuquerque um, when I was there on the scouting trip and I actually, the geologist was in a meeting. So I talked to the archeologist there for an hour um, because he's very familiar with this area and it just, you know, he told me all the places we could go, and he actually told me about some other extra things as well. He was amazing. So it's all on BLM land, so it's your land. Go out and use it, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem is it's all mountain biking trails, and so there's actually not, because the sides of the anticline are so steep, there's not a lot of access to actually get down and touch the rocks. That was a little bit of a challenge, but, I mean, no field area is totally perfect. So they did a lot of, like, remote taking of strikes and dips and a lot of sort of guessing because they couldn't see the contacts, but it made them think about, you know, angles that they needed to get at to see better where the contacts were, where there might be a fault, as opposed to just walking along and stumbling on these rocks. So I think it actually made them think a lot more that they couldn't touch every rock in the area. Yeah. Well, and some of the things that I've seen field geologists take strike and dip measurements on or um, (laughs) guess strike and dip of are pretty amazing (laughs) so i will confess and i'm sorry to any of my students you know who are who are listening to this i mean i was completely wrong about the stratigraphy but it was fun to let people sit there and take strike and dips on um (laughs) on the cross beds of the (laughs) travertine (laughs) because there was like a little hill and i could just sit on top of it and i'd watch somebody take a strike and dip and then they'd turn the corner and it would be dipping the entirely different way because it was another crossbed set and and i could just see them getting like super mad so i'd always go down and intervene but it was slightly amusing for me i will say so so did you interview any of these students for us to uh, no, I didn't get a chance to. Um, I will be talking to them more and more, though, so maybe I can get some post-interviews about the experience, um, mostly because, and this was pretty funny, uh, I think I tuckered them out every night. <laughs> and, <laughs> and while there was no open containers in our campground and, you know, there's no, even though there was a casino nearby, you actually couldn't carry around alcohol, so there was a shocking lack of drinking on this trip <laughs> well that's good it's wonderful you know we'd have our beers with dinner and then go back to camp and you know no one was driving we'd just walk over from the casino or whatever um but you couldn't have alcohol in camp but i don't think they would have drank any even if they could have because they were all so tired i mean we stayed out until <laughs> we stayed out past six the first night and i swear to you everyone is asleep by nine thirty. <laughs> 
Wow. That is, I, that is incredibly unusual for undergraduates. I know. Exactly. And we're at 6,100 feet. And so I think that was part of it, too. You know, we're from 1,100 feet. And they had to do some serious hiking. It was pretty physically strenuous. So I tuckered them smooth out. And then <laughs> we spent we spent a day looking at the um, stratigraphy around the area. We went and looked. There's sort of an associated syncline. And it's kind of in a larger anticlinorium complex. So we drove around and looked at that. And we spent most of the morning, or we spent all of the morning and part of the afternoon actually measuring some section in a different area. And then we spent a day and a half um, mapping the anticline itself. And then the last part of the day, I didn't want to. It was St. Patrick's Day, right? I've set myself up to for complete disaster. <laughs> We're camping <laughs> near a casino on St. Patrick's Day. And we get done at like 2 o'clock. <laughs> so I refuse to let them go back. But this wonderful BLM archaeologist who I was telling you about has told me of some trails. It's right near the Ojito uh, wilderness area so it's all this blm land but it's also near the ojito wilderness area and within there is a hoodoo trail and so if you remember from geology hoodoos are those sort of little balancing rocks they're sort of eroded on sandstone so they sit on these little bitty pedestals and it's a big rock that looks like it's balancing on top of it i i did not know that those had a name or that that was are the you name. serious <laughs> no <laughs> yeah so those are called hoodoos so that's, there's a lot of... I think of... that's a word of the week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, you know what a haboob is, right? Right. Okay, yeah, just making sure. <laughs> so that's a sandstorm. That's a that's a, a definition that I don't think most people know, and I like to throw that out in class. But so these are hoodoos, which okay. prompted a lot of hoodoo, you do jokes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I said, okay, guys, you know, we're not actually done. And they gave me the, oh, man... And I said, we're going to go find this hoodoo trail. So, of course, because I'm me, I get lost. <laughs> and I wind did, up... Did you have your GPS? <laughs> no, of course not. Why would I do something like that? Yeah. <laughs> I have my one black and white printed BLM map, <laughs> which steered me wrong. So, God bless the BLM, but do 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 some better... You know, you need to get your gazetteer out before you do this. <laughs> so... Um, I turned down this wrong road and I have a convoy of six university vehicles and I wind up at the gates of this huge ranch with all these no trespassing signs. Oh. Yes. And then I look back and there's a car behind us and I'm like, oh no. So we're going to get shot because I took all six vans down this car, down this guy's road. But he was a super nice guy. He had a big Airedale which is the big fluffy dog with him. And he laughed at us because I showed him my map. And he's like, I don't even know what that map says. <laughs> <laughs> but he took us to the hoodoo trail. And he's like, well, if you don't mind, I'll come with you. You know, the dog, he wanted to get, his dog was only a year old, even though it was 90 pounds. And he wanted to get him acclimated to people. And so I had, you know, probably 30 girls going, oh, puppy dog. <laughs> Me, myself right. included, and then the other 15 guys doing the same thing. Um, so he came <laughs> on this hoodoo trail with us, and it was super great. I mean, it wasn't super long, but it was in a different section than we were used to. None of the units were um, – it was only maybe five miles away from the anticline. None of the units were tilted. Everything was flat line. It was really interesting to see the difference in structure over such a short area. And um, so we hiked. We saw these beautiful hoodoos and all these – 
large Aeolian deposits, so big sand dune deposits, and it was unbelievable. Hmm. That sounds like a pretty good pretty good experience for them. Oh, right. And like it was cool to cap it off. And um, what was really the big draw on the Hoodoo Trail was we came through the Morrison, right? And so the Morrison is this pretty famous bed where you can find lots of dinosaurs, right? There's lots of dinosaur mm-hmm. bones and everything. And so <laughs> before we even made it to the Hoodoos, <laughs> I lost at least half the class because they were all looking for gastroliths. <laughs> So I don't know if you remember what gastroliths are. I'm pretty sure I do, but I think we should explain it for anybody that's <laughs> not quite sure. So a gastrolith is like basically a dinosaur gizzard rock. So they think that dinosaurs ate rocks and it performed the same function as like a gizzard in modern day bo- birds, right? So the rocks would sit in the dinosaur's stomach and rub together. And as it did this, it would break down bits of plant or whatever the dinosaur was eating. Um and so you can find these rocks, and you know that they're a gastrolith because they're super, super smooth. As they've been there in the dinosaur's stomach, rubbing against each other, you know, it's even smoother than a rock would get in, like, a river. So, Yeah, really relatively smooth. rounded. Yes. And... Yep, super, super shiny, like mirror shiny, and relatively rounded. And a lot of the Morrison is shales. And so if you find these big, rounded, shiny rocks in the middle of these shales you know that that's probably from a dinosaur's inside and not some river. So I lost half the class because they're all digging for gastroliths because <laughs> this guy we were with told them, do you find a lot of gastroliths here? They were gone. <laughs> but the rest of us went on and saw the hoodoos, which were, I mean, they're not like the most impressive hoodoos. They're not like the hoodoos you see in like Zion or anything like that. But they were super great. And just the the cool sedimentary structures, you could see like inner dune environments and all this neat stuff in the stratigraphy there. It was the best time. It was super informative. And the guy had been, he was from the area, he'd lived there for 30 years, told us all kinds of great stories, um, told us a lot about the native peoples of the area, and it was just a wonderful experience. Well, it sounds like you may have got uh, spoiled on your first trip there. <laughs> it is. Um, I told him I'd be back next year, and he said he'd be back there too, so we'll see if he is. But um, yeah, I think this is the best field trip that I will ever have, so hopefully <laughs> I don't, you know, live to regret that those words, but <laughs> we shall see. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great trip. So I unfortunately was not anywhere that was all that warm. Uh, <laughs> I went up to the Palisades in New York well, for that's pretty a workshop. Too. That's pretty, too, though. It was pretty, and it's not that bad of a drive. For me, it's uh, something like four, four and a half hours from Penn State. And we were up at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Okay. Yeah, they've got a really big research presence up there. So I'm guessing you weren't looking at rocks, because I know you don't like rocks very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Lamont Doherty is part of Columbia University which is in New York City. Uh, So it turns out most of the students actually live in New York City and take about a 45-minute bus commute. Oh, every day? Uh, Every day they come out to where the labs and that kind of thing are. But their classes are mostly in the city. That does not sound wonderful. So I'm going to tell kids that when they complain about driving the five extra minutes to my (laughs) technology-enhanced classroom. (laughs) Yeah, it could be... Much worse and much more expensive living conditions. <clears throat> mm-hmm. 
So what was your workshop about? So this was the third seismology student workshop. And this is a really cool idea of getting uh, students together in a kind of a low pressure environment. So there aren't, uh, there aren't professors and anybody there that's kind of breathing down your <laughs> neck and really scrutinizing you. Uh, it's a group of students that uh, have some 25 minute talks and lots of discussion sections and are just there to figure out what everybody's doing. That's really awesome. Um, was it just people from, I mean, obviously it wasn't just people from Lamont Doherty, but all over the Northeast, or do you have people from everywhere? There's people from everywhere. It was concentrated in the Northeast, uh, but there were folks from California out there, and a really nice variety of people and a great variety of topics. Uh, I'm not really a seismologist, since I do <laughs> pretty much lab friction, um, but this exposed me to a lot of what the seismologists are doing that was incredibly interesting. And I got to meet a lot of like-minded people that I hadn't had a chance to bump into yet. And I got to see some old friends as well. That's really cool. Um, that's really neat that it was like a student, was it a student organized event as well? Or It was a student organized event. Wow. And actually, it's probably be a good place to break. I'm going to play a little bit of audio. I talked to one of the organizers of the event and we discussed a little bit about what inspired them to start this event. So just to start with, tell us where you are in your career and what made you want to get this workshop together? Sure. Um, so I am at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which is part of Columbia University. I'm a fourth year seismology graduate student. Um, I work on things like upper mantle imaging techniques, so trying to work out what's going on with convection in the mantle uh, quite close to the surface. Um, the idea of the workshop <clears throat> actually was um, started three years ago. There was a, a graduate student symposium held here at Lamont, which was for it was sort of completely multidisciplinary, and people were coming in from all over. And we wanted to sort of piggyback on that. And the idea was really that of uh, a graduate student who's just graduated, uh, called Jingle, um, <clears throat> who thought that there weren't enough opportunities for graduate students to get together and discuss their research and their problems and all things like that. So um, so the first year we had this sort of one-day workshop piggybacking off the Graduate Student Symposium. And since then, we've sort of been building and growing and lengthening the workshop and getting more people to come in ever since. Yeah, yeah. so this year you had, what, uh, 40, between 40 and 50 people at the workshop, right? Yeah, we had uh, 43 signed up from uh, 15 institutions in nine states, which is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. So uh, when it comes to funding things like this, I know that's always a little bit tricky trying to get funding for organizing and putting people in, you know, hotels and all that. So how'd you guys accomplish that? Yeah. Um, so the last two years, we have sort of um, made use of some personal and departmental contacts with ConocoPhillips, who provided us funding for the last two years. Uh, this year, they provided no funding because uh, they, like everyone else, I suppose, are getting hit by the oil prices. Um, and so they weren't uh, willing to come up with anything, which we were a little surprised by, considering how few thousand we were after. Um, but uh, Lamont stepped up and uh, used department funding um, supplemented by um, a, an annual sh uh, Chevron fund. There's a little pot of money from Chevron. Um, and they managed to fund the whole thing. And as I said, we've been getting bigger every year. So this year's budget was also the largest 
Um, and we, you know, I mean, as you saw, we were able to put a few people up in hotels and had uh, food the whole time. <laughs> yeah, food and coffee are what these things run on, really. <laughs> well, mainly coffee, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when you guys were putting this together, I mean, how many of you did all the organization and kind of going through the abstracts and getting all the logistics together? Yeah, so I should, I mean, I happen to be the person talking to you, but I should definitely shout out um, uh, Celia Eddy, uh, Helen Janiszewski, and Kira Olson, who are the other members of the organizing committee. So there were four of us this year, and we sort of split up different logistical tasks and then, like you said, putting to, uh, getting together the abstracts and putting them into sessions and trying to trying to really craft something that allowed the most productive discussion of different topics. Because in the last couple of years, it was a little bit haphazard. I mean, we were still sort of learning. And we have di different topics kind of muddled together and discussion sections that one is focused. So this year, having, you know, sort of get, gotten over all the logistical hurdles of like, where do we put people and what do we feed them and things, in the last couple of years, we tried to really focus on things like the discussion sections and how to encourage the most sort of participatory and interactive um, environment. And, you know, you can tell me how, how well we did that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I thought it was really great the way that you guys had these breakout sessions based on what people were interested in at the beginning of the workshop when they were introducing themselves. And it had some of the most productive discussions of any workshop I've ever been to, really. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so <laughs> no, no, that was a great idea. And it was really interesting to be able to see what... Uh, is kind of a hot topic right now amongst people that are starting to think about, well, maybe they need to think about what they're going to fund as they step out of their graduate career and on into a postdoc or uh, higher in their career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like you said, we sort of, um, we had this brainstorming session right at the beginning where people introduced themselves and then said the topics they wanted to discuss. And, and you know, organically, we sort of came up with the topics that interested the people at the workshop. Um, and then um, I think that I think that really did help people feel comfortable uh, in the small groups because they were talking about things that they really wanted to talk about. And they were in a small group that allowed them to you know, express themselves. And so um, we actually just sent out a little survey um, <clears throat> to gauge the response of the people that came uh, and to see what we could improve next year. Um, and someone said what we really wanted to hear, that they felt comfortable asking stupid questions. Because yes. <laughs> we all have stupid questions. Um, and this, we think this is the only graduate student workshop designed by graduate students and attended exclusively by graduate students. And one of the points is that, you know, we get to know each other and things and you find out what other people are doing, but you can ask the stupid questions and you can ask the questions about methodology and the nitty gritty that no one ever talks about. You know, when you go to big conferences, people publish their flashy results. Um, but what we wanted to see was, you know, how do you do that? Because because often people don't know when they're trying to do their their work, and what it uh, often ends up as is um, people sort of reinventing the wheel, because everyone's working away on their own a little bit, um, sort of shut off from from what's going out there, going on out there in the wider world. Yeah, it was really great to get kind of down in the weeds with some of these things, and I know uh, at one part you actually hooked up your laptop and pulled up uh, papers and. We're just scrolling through, showing some figures, and we had a really good discussion. I think that was during the anisotropy discussion. Yeah, that's which, right, yeah. Uh, was a huge topic this year, it seemed like. <laughs> it was. It's, it sort of is every year. I think it's partly the, the people that organize it. I mean, I'm a bit of an anisotropy nut and several of the attendees. Um, and, and I thought some of the most provocative talks at this workshop were to do with anisotropy. 
Absolutely. So what, uh, did you guys have any like big challenges or anything that you came out of this really excited about that you're going to push forward for the, the fourth annual conference? Um, well, one of the challenges this year was actually keeping the faculty out because, <laughs> well, you know, we have a large and interested faculty here at Lamont and in the, you know, few days beforehand when the, the workshop was kind of getting on their radar and we posted the, the list of topics and, uh, and speakers and things, they kind of, they really wanted to see the talks. Um, <laughs> and so we sort of, at one point, even in, during the workshop, we had to, we had to kick someone out who'd sort of snuck in at the back because, you know, the point, like I said, is that you shouldn't be. This, the graduate students that are there are not supposed to be worried about the faculty that are in front of them or thinking about impressing them and you know future postdocs and all the stuff like that that actually comes when you go to another department and talk. It's supposed to be just convivial and low key and you know for fellow graduate students. Uh, so that, that was an unexpected challenge. Um, and other than that, I think just trying to um, work on work on those discussion sections and work on ways that we can make this really not only enjoyable, but sort of productive and have lasting uh, influences. For example, we just set up a, you know, in response to a discussion at the workshop, we just set up a Google Doc where people can share resources, share codes, share papers. Um, and hopefully that will be something that uh, people will use in their research and something that, um, you know, people want to attend the workshop in order to get access to. Yeah, and that's, I mean, there's even some discussion of setting up uh, kind of community pages. I know one of the attendees mentioned that they owned receiverfunction.com. <laughs> yeah. There was some talk about trying to set up uh, things so people don't, like you said, reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I know, and other valuable URLs. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that's great. Thanks for talking to us. I hey, appreciate I, it. I appreciate you setting the workshop up. Well, thanks for coming to the workshop, and thanks for the uh, publicity. <laughs> no problem. A couple of the really fun talks that stood out. Well, they were all pretty fun. It was two days of these, uh, Thursday and a Friday. But one that uh, caught my attention as being unusual was called Railroad Seismology. <laughs> I really hope that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they are looking at uh, seismic interferometry out in the desert using a long line of geophones near train tracks and trains as their seismic source. That is awesome. <laughs> that's that's like using that's like low budget seismology right there, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to have blasting permits. Exactly. Or... That's great. And really, you think about it, industries using vibro size and even kind of mm -hmm. pseudo random vibro size. Yeah. And that's pretty much what the train is. It had a source specter. I think he said something up to like 40 hertz. It had quite a bit of energy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, that was a project that was going on at uh, Cornell. That's really awesome. <laughs> hey, let's see. What else do we hear about? I've got the schedule up here. Uh, some really interesting stuff about uh, oceanic strike slip earthquakes and the way they're rupturing. Uh, of course, there was some talk of induced seismicity down in yep. your neck of the woods everybody's favorite topic uh-huh <laughs> and oh using um hydrophones in the ocean because you know our ocean bottom seismometer network isn't so great right yeah. and it gives us some big data gaps uh, so they were modifying argo floats and then actually building their own float uh, so argo floats are these robotic floats that oceanographers have used for a long time that mm -hmm. 
go down and come up and transmit their data and then go down and come up and they can go around the world for several years. Okay. So they've modified some of these with hydrophones and these things go down and sit and wait. And when the onboard algorithm detects that they have picked up uh, an earthquake, they surface, transmit their data and go back down and wait. Whoa, that's awesome. And they just happened to deploy a bunch of these near where an earthquake swarm happened. And so these oh. things were surfacing, I think he said something like 15 times a day at one oh point. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so do they have like an array or, I mean, how do they uh, sort do that? Of. How big are these little machines? So these things are about a meter long. Okay. And I couldn't really tell exactly from the pictures, but I'm going to say something like 8 to 12 inches in diameter. Okay. So and not that big. They would throw some of these overboard. The modified Argo floats, they did quite a few. And, of course, the position drifts around some. Right, yeah. And you have some problems. They have some clever ways to correct for the drift between when it starts surfacing and when it does surface. Mm, okay. And uh, the time uh, that gets unsynced from GPS while it's waiting <laughs> under the water. Uh, and as we know... Time is a really tricky thing, and I did get some good <laughs> feedback on that show. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, wow, yeah, you think of all the GPS problems that, and all the time problems we talked about just sitting on the surface, and then when you add kilometers of water on top of your listening devices, that's, that's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's see. On the second day, uh, I was one of, I think, three lab people, maybe four, that was at this workshop. Okay. Uh, and it was really great to get some feedback from seismologists in terms of what can we help provide you? I mean, you could tell the three or four of you apart because you were all pasty white, right? <laughs> well, remember, we're talking seismologists here. <laughs> okay, okay. We, we all live behind computer screens a lot yeah, of Yeah, it's true, it's true. <laughs> uh, the, a big topic of discussion was anisotropy, seismic anisotropy. That's hard uh, to solve. Yeah. And one thing that they really did that I loved about this workshop was at the very beginning, they had everybody go up. There was about 40-some-odd of us there. Uh, everybody go up, give a one- to two-minute introduction of who you are, where you are, what you do. And then on a huge whiteboard in front, write <laughs> what you're interested in talking about with other people. And if what you're oh interested in is already up there, underline it or circle it. or. And so after we went oh, through everybody, awesome. we had an entire whiteboard wall covered with topics, underlined, arrows between things, things circled, little sketches, all kinds of stuff. And then the organizers got together and set up breakout sessions that were in the schedule based on what topics were the most popular. That is the coolest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it was really that great. It's so awesome. It's like crowdsourced, like data dumping brain cloud stuff. That is the coolest thing ever. And like, what a cool way to, you know, get the highest interest things out there as opposed to just setting up a session and hoping someone comes to it. Yeah. And it got everybody talking. It got everybody comfortable with each other and the kind oh, of the informal nature. Awesome. Uh, 
And they they tweeted a picture. I will put a link in the show notes to this photo of the whiteboard <laughs> when we had finished. <laughs> and some of the topics that came up weren't too surprising, like computing synthetic seismograms okay. or mm-hmm. slow slip and trimmer. We knew that was going to be one because slow slip is the hot thing right now. All right. Yes, it is. That's for sure. So and I mean, about I, I fall into that category because I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and everybody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one category that I thought I would be the only one to put up, and it was on the board and had several underlines before <gasps> it was even my turn, was instrumentation. Really? Really. There were a lot of people there that were interested in instruments and getting better instruments or lower cost instruments or just improving the instrumentation that we have. Wow. Well, that's right up your alley. I bet you were super excited about that. <laughs> I was very excited. And in fact, I think several of the, the people that I talked to would be good candidates to have on. Well, pretty much everybody there would be a good candidate to have on the show <laughs> at some point because uh, all the discussions were just really great. But one thing we kind of called out in that instrumentation section was a lot of the people that do the high-end instruments, uh, be it gravimeter maintenance or uh, seismometer maintenance for certain seismometers, there's only a couple people in the world that know how to do it, and they're aging, and it's going to be a problem. Okay, yeah. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, right now, there's not really a career track. You either go into more of a technician role or you go into a science role. There's very few paths for scientists that want to do science and instrumentation development. And uh, I was encouraged to see that other people have recognized this problem and are worried about it and that it's not just me being, you know, the, <laughs> a, the weird combination. A huge nerd, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's really good and very heartening, I would think, you know. Absolutely. Uh, so let's see, what else do we have here? Of course, lots of discussion of... Uh, rate and state friction and let's see oh there's there was some great discussion over defining uh, slow slip or low frequency earthquakes (laughs) and what the difference between them is and of course not long after that discussion when i had my talk one of like the second or third slide was a slide that categorized these things and uh, (laughs) man that's what that's what western science loves to do man Boy, if we don't, if we know something about something, or if we know nothing about something, we want to define it and name it twelve different things. So we are going to put it into boxes, and then boxes within boxes. Exactly, yes. man. Yeah, it doesn't change, does it? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's good though. We all need names for these things. So when you say slow slip, it's not some, you know, means something to someone else. And you're not actually talking about the same thing. So, you know, it's totally, totally needs to be done. I just think it's really funny. Yeah. Well, the problem right now is, especially in that field, there aren't strict definitions. Right. Exactly. And, and so you're... Somebody's going to have to standardize. Right. Because you don't want to be comparing apples and oranges, you know, when you're trying to analyze this stuff. No, not at all. Um, and then the way they ended the workshop, which, like I said, we, we pushed things together cut out some of the coffee breaks, which was tragic, on the last day <laughs> uh, to try to D- get done a little bit early. Data before caffeine. <laughs> well, there was still coffee, just not dedicated coffee drinking time. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> of course but the last was. thing <laughs> that they did was had somebody talk about parallel computing and just gave kind of a very basic intro 
of here are some programs that you can run in parallel and that demonstrate basic parallel computing. And here are a lot of resources to go look at. Because a professor that I had for an algorithms class, a genetic and evolutionary algorithms class, uh, used to say that the only thing embarrassing about embarrassingly parallel problems is that we didn't do them. <laughs> and so this was really great to see that people are thinking about that and starting to yeah. apply it yeah. in seismology, which in a lot of cases, our problems are kind of embarrassingly parallel, where the result of one calculation may not depend on the other. So you can do them in any order and just chunk them up between a bunch of different CPU cores. Ah, uh, that's kind of awesome. Uh, there are some things, of course, where the one answer depends on the other, and then you have the slow CPU that holds you back. But Yeah. <laughs> there are ways to deal with that. And it was a really great little tutorial at the end and a great way to round things off. Please tell me that one of the ways to deal with it is to kick it. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Uh, most of these things, of course, are running on a cluster that you never see. You just remote into. Okay, fine. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You can tell somebody to kick it. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is how I deal with technology, John, okay? <laughs> it's true. We did have uh, some technology issues before this show. Getting <gasps> things. Oh, yeah. Those were, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's Windows' fault now. <laughs> I, I didn't say it. <laughs> hey, I was able to move all my clocks forward. I don't have any 12 o'clock flashing at my house. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know about you, but I think we should probably start uh, wrapping that up and go into everybody's favorite segment. Yay! <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Still, still no cowbell. Still no cowbell. It's killing me, man. It's killing me. Um, I love this paper. It was amazing. <laughs> so I actually, uh, I know you listen to Car Talk. Oh, and all the time. Probably... A decent portion of our listeners have listened to Car Talk. I would think so. <laughs> For those of you that don't, of course, it's an NPR program. It was a call-in auto-slash-marital-advice show <laughs> that ran for years and years. And unfortunately, one of the hosts uh, died recently. Oh, and yes. It was It, it was a really sad. sad thing, but they're still airing the show. Uh, they're remixing old shows, and it's worth listening to. Uh, you can get them as a podcast. Absolutely. Uh, it's so hilarious. But they hilarious. actually referred this paper to this paper at some point several years ago, <laughs> and I looked oh. it up. And so because I got it from Cartuck, I am going to put that this is part of our Better Living Through Math series <laughs> of Fun Paper Fridays. I'll add the appropriate snorts and guffaws of laughter as we discuss this, <laughs> much like I'm sure was heard on Car Talk when they discussed mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so this paper is by Simon R. Blackburn and is called The Geometry of Perfect Parking. <laughs> I will say that I, when I first glanced at it, I sort of zoned out afterwards after the words geometry, and then I realized that it was actually going to be very good, <laughs> and it was a very good paper. So it turns out this was actually commissioned from this mathematician <laughs> by a vehicle company. Who he I specifies, thought that was great. Yeah, he says they do own the copyright to this. And uh, he says, please take precautions before trying to experimentally verify the theory. <laughs> um, it's a super easy read because he's quite hilarious in it and is clearly British, which makes it even better. Yeah. And so the goal of this entire paper 
is when you're trying to parallel park, can we compute a formula for how far uh, the distance between two cars needs to be so your car can squeeze in with <laughs> one fail swoop? <laughs> and he doesn't mean drifting. He very specifically says no skidding in sideways. Yeah, so you can't have any, you know, Vin Diesel parking going on. Here. Yes, exactly. He's very, very adamant about the the definition of the perfect parking in terms of parallel parking. Yeah, and so as with any good mathematics problem, we of course make some approximations. Uh, <laughs> Such as boxy cars. Uh, yeah, and, the squareness of the cars, yes. Yeah, you know, some approximations about the curb being low so you don't actually rip fenders and things right. off. And, right, right. Uh, and we draw some really nice idealized diagrams and then start defining a theory which turns out to just be basic geometry, right? Pythagoras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. He's got that, all those refreshers for the people who would pick this up that don't remember Pythagorean's theorem, but... Pythagorean theorem, but um, yeah, it's very simple, and his drawings are very eloquent. Yeah, and he actually pointed out something that, so of course, the two wheels on the front of your vehicle are going around circles that have different radii. Right. So they actually should be angled a little bit differently for a minimum friction. Right. And he talked about Ackerman steering geometry. This will be in the show notes. You should definitely go down the wiki hole with me on this. Uh, <laughs> you spent a long time down that hole, didn't you? Yeah, maybe. And <laughs> so this is not really used on modern cars, it turns out, because minimum friction doesn't really matter when it comes to great handling at high speed, right? Right. Uh, but this, this steering geometry was invented by a German carriage maker in uh, 1817. Wow. And yeah, you should definitely go read about it. It's a really great read. And he also references a book called How Round Is Your Circle, where engineering yeah. and mathematics meet. I started to look that one up. That was pretty cool. I have already got the ebook of it after reading this article. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> uh-huh. So anyway, back to the, back to the article. <laughs> yes. I mean, he lauds that book. I really want to read it as well. It's an entire footnote about how wonderful it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And there are some great references in this paper, by the way. It's, yes. You should definitely take a look at the reference list. Yes. Uh, anyway, so he says, I've never enjoyed toing and froing in a narrow space. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to do this in one straight back in motion, which of course means that, you know, you need to have a little bit more space than you might in a practical sense. Uh, right. And then he addresses some comments. He says some questions you might ask uh, about backing straight in and then, you know, taking your wheels hard over at the last minute. Or actually an interesting question of why doesn't the formula involve the width of the car? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you're parking. And it turns out it doesn't. And it may seem harder to park something that's very wide. But my guess but is it that... Doesn't. Yeah, my guess is that only has to do with uh, the fact that you can't see as well from the mirrors. Oh, right, exactly, because he's only concerned with you know the line along the curb. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean with your GPS, you know, with your sub nanosecond time sync <laughs> accuracy, in theory you can park a windowless car, right? Oh, uh, but what if my candle <laughs> isn't 
<laughs> reacting that well to the moving back and forth. And, and then just because he knows some people will want to uh, go back and forth and you know do the thousand point turn to try to get into a tiny spot. <laughs> Anybody that's ever lived on a street where you have to parallel park knows this dance. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he has some really nice plots of what that process looks like and a formula to calculate. <laughs> he does. <laughs> exactly how much closer you can get every time. And so he has a plot of the tractics and the uh, the path of the rear corner of the car, both, uh, with each successive <laughs> That was sort of my out. favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good part, especially because he calls it to and froing instead of thousand point turning. But mm-hmm. well, and you pointed out curb is uh, K with a K in this. K E R B. Yes, exactly. I knew I'd love it immediately <laughs> <laughs> when I read that sentence. <laughs> and I'm also interested in some of the other. Uh, he references a book called A Book of Curves. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. And. Yep. I'm actually going to go look that one up, too, and see if the library has it, just because I'm very curious to look through it in the sense that he referenced it. <laughs> uh, the, references, the references are really great. One of them is a driving hazard revisited, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which I liked. I thought that was good. Uh, no, this was a really fun read. It was, you know, brought back some high school math horrors, but, um, you know, geometry is still useful, kids, so. <laughs> it is, and this... Who knows, if you did this on your driver's ed test, depending on hey, who's giving you the test. Exactly. <laughs> I bet the instructor would tell you to shut up before they made you actually parallel park if you started to whip out some of this math. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So as always, you should find a fun paper for every Friday and join us. It's a lot of fun because we get to read about things that are outside of our domain a little bit. And then we share it with everybody. So you can use the hashtag Fun Paper Friday on Twitter or on Facebook and let everybody know what you're reading and maybe we'll discuss it on the air. And we really encourage you to send us uh, your email and voice comments. And Shannon, how can they do that? Well, they can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always find us on our website where you can leave a voice comment or just a regular old written comment, don'tpanicgeocast.com. I'm on Twitter, at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And you can always tweet us, at don'tpanicgeo. Right, and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.